thanks for tuning in this week to Cross Connection Church Houston. We're a small church plant located in the Pasadena area. It is our mission to save the lost, to equip the saved, to serve both the lost and the saved, and finally to send the equipped. To this end, we teach through the Bible on a verse-by-verse basis, starting from the beginning of a book and working our way through all the way till the end. It is our prayer that you would grow in the knowledge of Jesus Christ through his word. Well, we live in a world that is full of trouble, and because of that, all of us face troublesome situations. And as we saw as we studied through the Gospel of Luke, as we saw as we studied through the book of Acts, that you know, uh, the disciples faced trouble, Jesus faced trouble, the early church faced trouble, and definitely Paul uh, faced a lot of trouble in his life. So being a Christian doesn't remove you from trouble, it doesn't remove you from troublesome circumstances, and actually I would say as Christians we face a lot of trouble because we live in a world that is very hostile and against what we believe, against who we serve, against who we worship, uh, and since trouble is something that we so often face as, question, uh, as Christians, the question we need to ask ourselves is how should we respond? How should we respond when trouble comes our way, when we're in a troublesome situation? Well, this morning I want to share with you what Jesus says should be our response to times of trouble. And the main question I want us to answer this morning is, how does Jesus say we should respond when we face troublesome situations in our life? And the challenge that we have this morning is to take what Jesus says and to apply it to our lives. You see, I want you to think about troublesome situations that you have encountered in the past, or or perhaps you're going through some trouble right now, and I want you to think about how you have responded or how you are responding now. And as we look at what Jesus shares with us, I want you to examine your own responses and see, are they in line with what Jesus says is the way in which we should respond to the trouble that we face? In John chapter 14, Jesus is going to share with us how we should respond to trouble, but he's also going to give us five reasons why we should respond that way. Now, the word trouble means to disturb, agitate, distress, or worry, to cause anxiety or concern to trouble. All of us deal with that. All of us struggle with that. And so I think what we're going to look at this morning is very challenging Now, in order to really understand the the depth of what Jesus says here in chapter 14, I think we need to understand the context in which it's being said, because what Jesus and the disciples go through in chapter 13 of John definitely impacts what he says in chapter 14. It makes it much more deep and powerful. And so I want to start by just giving you a summary of chapter 13, highlighting specific events that take place with the disciples and Jesus to kind of give you the context of what Jesus says when he speaks about trouble, which will really impact his words. In John chapter 13, we have the disciples together. They're there in the upper room. It's their last night together before Jesus is going to be crucified. And during that time, Jesus is going to say and do four things that definitely would have brought trouble to the disciples. It would have given them a reason to be disturbed, a reason to be distressed and agitated. The first thing that Jesus does that would have given the disciples reason to be troubled is he goes around and he washes each one of the disciples' feet. 
Now, in that culture, the person who would normally do this, if you would come into someone's home, would be the lowliest servant in the home. And the reason the lowliest servant got stuck with that job, they didn't choose that job, was because people back then, they didn't have shoes like we do. They didn't walk on paved roads like we do. They either had sandals or they walked in bare feet and they walked on dirt roads. And so imagine, you know, walking that. And so did the animals travel that. So, you know, animals, when they're going, they drop things on the ground and you'd step in that. And so your feet would get pretty nasty as you walk through cities and you travel from place to place. And so as you came to someone's house, they definitely didn't want your nasty feet all over their floor. And so the lowliest servant would come and he would wash and clean your gross feet. Now, the significance of this is there in the upper room, there's no servants. It's just Jesus and the disciples. Now, you would never have someone greater wash the feet of someone lesser. So a master would never wash you know, the servant's feet. A teacher would never wash the, the student's feet. And so in this context, the one who should have had their feet washed was Jesus, and the people who should have been washing were the disciples, because Jesus is the teacher. They're the students. He's the master. Uh, yet Jesus is the one who's there on his hands and knees, going around and washing the disciples' feet. And that would have been a bit troublesome to them. This was not normal. And so Jesus goes around, and and Peter understands the significance of the fact that Jesus shouldn't be doing this. Peter should be doing this. And so when Jesus gets to Peter, Peter says, no, 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 you're not washing my feet. You know, thinking, hey, I should be doing it for you. You know, I'm not worthy for you to have this. And Jesus says, you know what? I don't wash your feet. You have nothing, no part of me. And so then Peter says, well, not just my feet, my hands and my head. Hey, wash all of me if that's the reality of it. But, you know, um, there's this service that Jesus does. But then he goes on to tell them something in light of what he's just done for them that really probably would have brought more trouble. In John chapter 13, verse 13 through 16, it says, You call me teacher and Lord, and you say, well, for so I am. If then your Lord... And teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do as I have done to you. Most assuredly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is he who is sent greater than him who sent him. By washing the disciples' feet, Jesus sets an example for them that was very foreign to them. And he says, I've given you example to do as I have done to you. And then he says this thing that was foreign. Most assuredly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is he who sent greater than him who sent him. Now, this message, especially to the disciples, would have been difficult to grasp and to hold on to and to put into practice, because if you remember through the Gospels, the disciples argued a lot about something. They argued about which one of them would be the greatest. You see, they weren't concerned about serving one another. They were concerned about who was the greatest. They were concerned about, hey, who's going to serve me? I'm greater than you, Peter. No, I'm greater than you, John. No, I'm greater than you, Matthew. I mean, that was constantly what they were arguing about, was which one of them were greater. And now Jesus said, you know what? You guys have missed it. If you want to be true, Followers of me, you need to serve those that you think you are greater than. So the first thing that Jesus does is he washes their feet and he shares this concept of service. You know, that would have been a bit troubling to people who weren't doing that. But what Jesus shares next, there's nothing compared to it in the sense of how much it would trouble them. In verses 21 and 22, Jesus says, Most assuredly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. Then the disciples looked at one another, perplexed about whom he spoke. 
Now, you want to talk about a troubling statement. Jesus says, one of you 12 guys right here in this room are going to betray me. And they start looking around. Uh, is it going to be Matthew? Is it going to be Peter? Is it going to be John? Is it going to be me? They're, they're perplexed. Like, who is going to do this? Now, remember, these guys have been together for three years. I mean, these guys were close. I mean, which one of these guys, when we think, yeah, we might be betrayed by the outside sources, the religious leaders, but surely not by one of our own. A very troubling statement, for sure. Well, the next thing that Jesus says would have been given them even more reason to be troubled. Verse 33, he says, Little children, I shall be with you a little while longer, and you will seek me. And as I said to the Jews, where I'm going, you can't come. So Jesus says, one of you is going to betray me. And then he says, you know what, guys, I am leaving, and you can't come with me. Now, picture the, the disciples. Remember, you know, Peter earlier on says, hey, we left all to follow you. We gave up our job. We gave up everything to follow you. These guys have been following Jesus for three years. They're expecting Jesus to establish an earthly ministry. They're expecting to be with Jesus for the rest of their lives. And Jesus saying, I'm leaving you, and where I'm going, you can't come. So once again, very troublesome words for these disciples, but it gets even worse. The final thing that Jesus says, especially to one of the disciples, would have been the most difficult of all. After Peter hears Jesus say he's leaving and they can't come, notice the conversation that Peter and Jesus have. Verse 36 through 38 says, Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered, where I'm going, you cannot follow me now, but you shall follow me afterward. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you? I will lay down my life for your sake. Jesus answered him, will you lay down your life for my sake? Most assuredly, I say to you, the rooster shall not crow till you have denied me three times. Here's one of the biggest blows of all. Peter is one of the most outspoken, bold of all the disciples. And Peter's like, hey, Jesus, where are you going? Why can't we come? I would lay my life down for you. And Jesus says, really? You know what, Peter? Before the rooster crows, you are going to deny me three times. Now, try to put yourself in the situation of the disciples. Jesus has said now and done four things. He, he's challenged them with service and a concept that was very foreign to them. But now one of you is going to betray me. I'm leaving. You can't come. Peter, you're going to deny me. This is the setting of chapter 13. And this is how it ends with, hey, Peter, you're going to deny me. And now we come to chapter 14. And I think the context is so important because the first verse of chapter 14 is an amazing challenge. These guys were troubled. I'm sure we would be troubled as well if we were in that circumstance. But notice how Jesus starts John 14, verse 1. Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. Jesus knew the disciples were troubled. He knew that what he just said brought trouble to their life. And he tells them something so important. Don't let your heart be troubled. What Jesus says here is very important for us to understand, but first notice what he didn't say. He didn't say, you know, I hope your hearts are troubled. He didn't say, I'm sorry that you guys are troubled. He didn't say, I understand about your hearts being troubled. He didn't say, it's okay that your hearts are troubled. No, Jesus says, don't let your heart be troubled. You know, by making that statement, Jesus reveals something very important to you and I. You and I have control over whether or not we allow our hearts 
to be troubled. You see, if we didn't have control over this, if we had no control, if we had no ability to stop our hearts from being troubled, Jesus would not have told us, don't let your heart be troubled. Jesus doesn't tell us to do things that he won't give us the power to accomplish. He won't say, don't let your heart be troubled. I know that you have no power over it. I know you have no control over it, but I'm going to say it anyway. No, he doesn't do that. He tells us this because he recognizes we can choose to not let our heart be troubled, or we can choose to let our heart be troubled as we face difficult circumstances. The reality is our circumstances don't control whether or not we're troubled. We do. Whether or not you are troubled by circumstances is a choice that you and I make. I know many times in my life, and maybe you're like me, that you've made excuses for yourself because of your circumstances, and you think, you know, Try to convince yourself, it's okay that I'm troubled because I'm in such a troublesome situation and it's not my fault that I'm dealing with this. And so we kind of try to justify our response because we think, well, it's so difficult then it's okay that I'm troubled. But that's not what Jesus tells us. He says, you know what, in those circumstances, don't let your heart be troubled, which means we can choose and should choose not to let our heart be troubled in those circumstances. Now, we need to understand that the response that Satan would love for us to have when we face trials and difficulties and hardship is that we would get troubled. Because when we're troubled, when we're distressed, we're full of anxiety and worry, it is so much easier for him to attack us and get at us because we're so much more susceptible to the different tactics he uses against us. So Jesus says, when you encounter something very difficult, don't let your heart be troubled. But something else we need to remember, and I've said it many times, Jesus will never ask us or command us to do something that he will not give us the strength and power to accomplish. And so when Jesus says, don't let your heart be troubled, we need to be confident that he will enable us to fulfill that command. And this is what I love about John chapter 14. Jesus doesn't just say to the disciples, don't let your heart be troubled and stop and move on, and nothing else is said He goes from there, and he gives five specific reasons why. Don't let your heart be troubled. And you guys, you know what? Let me share with you some reasons why you shouldn't let your heart be troubled. And I can personally say that when I have applied these five things to my life, it has definitely helped me not to let my heart be troubled, and definitely in some very troublesome situations and circumstances. Now, the first reason why we shouldn't let our heart be troubled is Found in verses 2 through 4 of John chapter 14, Jesus says, In my Father's house there are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And where I go, you know, and the way you know. Jesus tells us some wonderful things there. In my Father's house, which is in heaven, he says there are many mansions, and I go to prepare a place for you. Right now, for those of us who have placed our faith in Jesus Christ, he is in heaven preparing a home, a place, a mansion for us to dwell in when we come there to be with him. And Jesus says, if I go to heaven, to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. 
Jesus gives this promise. Hey guys, I'm going to go to heaven. I'm going to prepare this wonderful place for you. But guess what? I'm not just going to stay there. I'm going to come back and I'm going to get you and I'm going to bring you to heaven with me so that you can actually live in the wonderful mansion that I have made for you. The first reason why we shouldn't let our heart be troubled is because we have the hope of heaven. Don't let your heart be troubled because we are going to heaven. No matter how difficult this life gets, something we need to understand as believers in Jesus Christ, this is the worst it will ever be. Now, for those who don't believe in Jesus, the sad reality is this is the best it will ever be. But for us as believers in Christ, no matter what we're dealing with, no matter what hardship we face, this is the worst it will ever be for us. But soon we are going to heaven and there's no more tears, there's no more sin, there's no more sadness, there's no more sorrow. We get to be face to face with our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And the fact that we know what is coming in the future should impact the present. The fact that we know that we're going to heaven should impact how we respond to the troublesome things that we face now. You know, when I was a young boy, as probably many of you, I had a great expectation and excitement for Christmas. And it really wasn't a a good godly excitement for Christmas. It was, I'm going to get some presents, and I'm ready for that, I'm excited for that, I want that. Now, I don't know about you, but, you know, if your parents were were good at, you know, uh, hiding some gifts, but mine weren't, and they would put a lot of gifts they got for me in their closet, just behind clothes, and, you know, we all knew where it was. And so every, you know... A few days before Christmas, my brother, sister, and I would all go in there and kind of figure out what we got. Well, I asked for uh, Nintendo one year, and, you know, this is not like the Nintendos we have now. This is the original. It's, you know, it's not good like it is today, but it was awesome back then, and I desperately wanted one. And I go in, and I see this thing, and I'm so excited. Oh, they actually bought me this Nintendo. I didn't think they were going to do it. And, you know, because I was going to get this Nintendo, I was so excited, so looking forward to Christmas that I wasn't letting anything trouble me. My brother hits me, you know what, forget it. Christmas is five days from now, and when I get this Nintendo, I'm not going to let him play it, and it's going to be great. But you know what, You know, I just kind of allowed this to let me move forward in a way that I wasn't getting trouble. Now, if the excitement of Nintendo could bring me to a place where I was allowing myself not to be troubled, how much more should the excitement of heaven cause us to not allow ourselves to be troubled with the things of this world. You know, Paul gives a very similar encouragement and challenge in 2 Corinthians 4, 16 through 18. He says, Therefore we do not lose heart, even though our outward man is perishing, yet the inward man is being renewed day by day. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory, while we do not look at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen, for the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. Paul says, don't lose heart. He's basically saying the same thing that Jesus says, don't let your heart be troubled. But then Paul gives us a reason. Well, why shouldn't we lose heart? It's because of the fact that what we go through, he says, are light afflictions. Now, now Paul's including all believers here. He's saying all that we go through in this life is light afflictions. Now, you might be thinking, Paul, maybe what you went through is light affliction, but what I'm going through or what I've been through is not light. It's heavy. I mean, if you only knew what I've had to deal with in life, you would never say this. Well, this is why I love the fact that Paul said this. Of all the people to make this statement, I'm grateful it was Paul, because as we saw through the book of Acts, if anyone knew what affliction was, it was him. 
Here's a guy who was in prison, beaten. Here's a guy who was stoned, possibly to death. Here's a guy who was betrayed. He went through so many horrible things. And for him to say his affliction was light, I'm sure that all of us would agree when you look at Acts and see Paul's life, we would not say Paul affliction light. We would say Paul affliction heavy, difficult, hard. And he says, no, no, no. It was light. But what are you talking about, Paul? How in the world is being beaten and imprisoned and going through all that something that is light? Well, Paul tells us, he gives us two reasons why we should consider the afflictions of this life life light instead of heavy. The first reason is because it is but for a moment. Our life here on this earth is for a moment in comparison to all of eternity. So even if we're afflicted every day of this life, when you measure it to the blessings that are going to come for all eternity in heaven, it's light in comparison. When you compare the two, what we go through here is light in compared to eternal blessings in heaven. The second reason Paul gives us for why our affliction is light and not heavy is because God is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weights of glory. You know, another reason why our affliction is light and not heavy is because of what God is accomplishing in us through our affliction, through our suffering and trial. God is working a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. You know, you might think your suffering is bad, but in comparison to the eternal weight of glory, it is light. You know, basically Paul is saying, go ahead and Get out the scale. Put all your momentary afflictions on one side of the scale, and then let me put the weight of glory of what you're going to receive in heaven on the other side, and you're going to see right away that there's no comparison. The weight of glory, and he uses that weight because it it has so much weight to what we're getting versus the light affliction that we go through. And in comparison, Paul is saying, man, what we receive in heaven is so much greater that in comparison, all that we go through in this life is just light. You see, Paul had a heavenly perspective. He was looking to the future. He was looking at what was coming. And because of that, he was able to look at the present circumstances he faced and said, they're light in comparison to heaven. But you know what? He wasn't trying to belittle Or say, you know what, what you go through is not hard, what you go through is in difficulty. He's saying, just understand the comparison of eternity versus the temporary life that we have. So first, don't let your heart be troubled because we have the hope of heaven. This is as bad as it's ever going to get, but soon we'll spend eternity with God in heaven. So look forward to it and allow it to help you not to be troubled. The second main reason for why we shouldn't let our heart be troubled is found in verses 5 through 11. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you're going, and how can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known the Father also. And from now on, you know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is sufficient for us. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and yet you have not known me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. So how can you say, Show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father in me? The words that I speak to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does the work. 
Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father in me, or else believe me for the sake of the work themselves. So Jesus is speaking about heaven, and Thomas says, Lord, we do not know where you're going, and how can we know the way? And then Jesus responds with one of the most significant and important scriptures in all the Bible. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. Jesus clearly reveals to us there is only one way to God. There is only one way to heaven. There is only one way to be forgiven of your sins, and that is through Jesus. Now, that goes in the face of a lot of what the culture says because they want to say there's many roads to God. There's many paths to heaven. There's many paths to forgiveness. That is not what the Bible teaches. That is not what Jesus says. He says there's only one way. I am that way. There's only one truth. I am that truth. There's only one way to eternal abundant life, and it's through me. F.F. Bruce, a great Bible scholar, said, without the way, there's no going. Without the truth, there's no knowing. Without the life, there's no living. I am the way which thou must follow, the truth in which thou must believe, the life for which thou must hope. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and we need to understand that none of the five points that I am going to share with you this morning will do you any good if you haven't yet accepted him. It starts with him. That's where it all starts. It starts with accepting the way, accepting the truth, accepting the life, accepting Jesus. Once you accept him, then these other things start to impact and bless your life. But without him, none of these things are a benefit to you. Well, Philip responds to Jesus by saying, show us the Father, and it is sufficient for us. And notice how Jesus responds to Philip. He's saying, have I been with you so long that you don't know me? I and the Father are one. We're the same. So if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. If you know me, you know the Father. If you've seen how I have dealt with people, you know how the Father deals with people. The second reason we shouldn't let our heart be troubled is because we know the good nature of our Father. You know, when you look through the Gospel of Luke like we did, or John, or Matthew, or Mark, you see how good Jesus is to the people who are suffering, and in need, and sick, and demon-possessed, and hurting. He was always there to heal, and impact, and, and reach out, and forgive. He was someone who demonstrated the great goodness of God to people. You know, when we're in a difficult time, we need to remember the nature of the Father that we serve is good. Jeremiah 29, 11 says, For I know the thoughts that I think toward you, says the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil, to give you a future and a hope. This verse reveals to us the kind of thoughts that God thinks towards us. Thoughts of peace, not of evil, to give you a future and a hope. Now those are great words, but the reality is, do you believe that? Do you believe that is the way that God thinks about you? Especially when you're in a troublesome circumstance. Because I know there have been times in my life when I face trouble, and I don't believe this is true. Oh, you don't have good thoughts for me. You must have evil thoughts for me. You know, you don't have hope for me. You must have despair for me. Because I'm in this troublesome circumstance, and I lose sight of the truth of how God sees me because I'm just so focused on the trouble around me. Romans 8.28 tells us another wonderful thing about God. And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. 
Yeah, this is one of the most encouraging scriptures for those who believe in Jesus. Notice it's not telling us that God can work all things for good for just anybody in the world. It's God will work all things for good to those who are called according to his purpose, to those who love God. It's for believers. But you know what? If you and I, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, this is such a wonderful truth that all things God can work together for good in your life. You know, this verse, once again, it sounds nice, but do we really believe what it says, especially when they're in the midst of a difficult circumstance? Uh, There's been countless times in my life where I've struggled with believing the truth of this verse, believing that God could bring good out of the circumstance that I was facing. One of those circumstances was when my grandmother died of cancer when I was 13 years old, and you know, my grandmother lived with me for most of my life. We were very close, and, you know, she died. And I remember at the funeral, someone quoted this to my dad, and I was standing near him. And I was really kind of offended at this verse, and thinking, how can God bring anything good from the death of this woman that I love? But you know what? Before she died, every night I was praying with my grandma, mainly praying that she would be healed. And you know what? That wasn't really her main prayer. Every night, I would pray that for her, and she would always be praying for her kids to get saved. My dad was the only one that was a believer in Christ. All her other kids were not. And that was her biggest desire. Lord, I want to see my kids come to know you. Well, at her funeral, one of her children was saved, and soon after it, all of her kids got saved. And they all said that funeral was the big turning point for them to really start to think about and recognize who Jesus was and start to consider that. And so through my grandma's death, good came from it because her greatest desire was to see her kids get saved. And God used her funeral and death in order for that to take place. You know, another situation I saw God bring good out of that at the time I didn't think any good could come out of. After being married for three years, Jenny and I decided we wanted to have kids, and so we tried, and then Jenny got pregnant, and you know, after a little bit of time, we, we told our family, uh, and then Jenny had a miscarriage, and, and that was definitely difficult, to say the least, but you know, we decided, you know, we want to try again, we want to have kids, and so we did, uh, she gets pregnant again, and we wait a little longer this time just to make sure everything was good. And, you know, we feel like, okay, you know, things are, good, are going well. We call all uh, our family. And then right after that, once again, she has another miscarriage. And it was a very hard time. And, and once again, hearing this passage of, you know, oh, God can bring good out of this. You know, wow. You know, something that we've noticed is right after that, you know, God does so much to comfort us and to work in us and to just be there to help us get through that. And since then, I mean, before then, we really didn't have very many people that were in our life that had had miscarriages. And from that time until now, God has just brought so many people into our lives who have dealt with that. And we now can share with them the comfort that God brought to us. We can be there and understand so much better where they're at, what they're going through, because we experienced that. And the Lord has been able to use us to benefit and bless others because of this circumstance. He was able to bring good from that. You know, another situation I saw God bring good out of, and I didn't think at the time would be something he would. When we were missionaries in Scotland, there was the recession here in America, and, you know, a lot of churches were losing tithes because people were losing jobs. And so we had several churches and individuals who said, you know what, sorry, we can't support you anymore because, you know, we don't have the funds to do it. And so we lost half of our support 
in one month. And I remember sharing that with a Scottish pastor friend of mine, and, and he quotes this passage of, you know, well, God works all things for good. And, and I'm just like, you know, how is God going to work good? I just lost half of our support. We're going to have to leave Scotland. But before that month was even done, God had connected us with churches and individuals that we still to this day don't know how we got connected with them. And the support that was given by them was more than we lost. And the whole thing, God was just like, you know what? Remember who provides for you. Remember who takes care of you. It's not necess- It's not the churches he uses them. It's not the people he uses them. But he's like, ultimately, it's me. I'll take care of your needs. Just trust me through this. And it was a great learning lesson for us. And once again, God was able to bring good out of that. You know, when you're confident that God can bring good out of any circumstance, it definitely helps you not to be troubled. Because that's one of the reasons we get troubled. We think, oh, there's so many bad things are going to happen from this. We say, well, wait a second. My God can bring something good. And if I truly hold to that and believe that, it enables me to not be troubled. We need to be confident in God's goodness, and that's one of the main reasons we can choose to not let our heart be troubled. So first... Don't let your heart be troubled because we have the hope of heaven. We need to look forward to it. Second, don't let your heart be troubled because we know that nature of our God is good. We need to remember it. The third reason for why we shouldn't let our heart be troubled is found in verses 12 through 14. It says this, Most assuredly I say to you, He who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also, and greater works than these he will do because I go to my Father. And whatever you ask in my name... That I will do, that my Father may be glorified in the Son, and if you ask anything in my name, I will do it. Jesus repeats something in these verses that's such an encouragement and a challenge for us. Ask anything in my name, and I will do it. You know, the third reason for why we shouldn't let our heart be troubled is we have the privilege of prayer. Yeah, and this is something that is such... A a huge privilege that so often is so wasted among Christians. And I've been one to waste this privilege a lot in my Christian life. You know, when difficulty comes, don't get troubled. Get on your knees and pray. We have the wonderful privilege of prayer. And when we go through difficulty, we can ask God for help no matter what circumstances we're dealing with. Philippians 4, 6 says, Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. Don't get anxious, don't get troubled, and everything that you go through, just bring it to God in prayer. That is the challenge that God gives to us. And I have personally found, when I am willing to come to the Lord in prayer, it makes such a huge difference as to whether or not I allow myself to be troubled by the circumstances I come to. When I'm not praying, I'm so much more prone to be troubled. When I am praying, I'm so much less prone to be troubled. Prayer makes a huge impact. God moves and answers prayer. And you can ask Him when you're weak, to give you strength, when you're anxious, to give you peace, when you've fallen on your face, God, I need you to help me get back up, when you sin, I need your forgiveness, he is there to answer the requests, whatever you're going through, to help you through that difficulty. We have such a privilege in prayer, don't neglect it. So first, 
Don't let your heart be troubled because we have the hope of heaven. Look forward to it. Second, don't let your heart be troubled because we know the good nature of our Father. Remember it. Third, don't let your heart be troubled because we have the privilege of prayer. Utilize it. The fourth reason we shouldn't let our heart be troubled is in verses 15 through 17 and verse 26. It says this, If you love me, keep my commandments. And I will pray the Father, and he will give you another helper, that he may abide with you forever, the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him. For he dwells with you and will be in you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all things that I have said to you. Notice Jesus says, I will pray to the Father, and he will give you another Helper. Jesus is speaking about the Holy Spirit. With this Greek word for helper, it's translated, it means uh, call to one side to aid and help someone through whatever they're going through to comfort. And notice Jesus says five things about this helper, about the Holy Spirit. He may abide with you forever. He's a spirit of truth. He will be in you. He will teach you all things. He will bring to your remembrance all the things that Jesus said. The fourth reason for why we shouldn't let our heart be troubled is because we have the Holy Spirit to help us. We don't need to be troubled because the Holy Spirit dwells within us and he has everything that we need in the difficulties and the troubles and the, the trials that we face. This is such a wonderful blessing. No matter what you're going through in this life, the Holy Spirit is there. He abides with you. He never leaves you. He's always there for you to access Him. If you need strength, He'll give it to you because He's all-powerful. If you need wisdom and direction, He'll give it to you because He's the Spirit of truth. He knows all. If you need to be taught or remember God's Word, He'll do it. Jesus promises He will. One of the biggest reasons why we shouldn't allow ourselves to get troubled is because we have the Holy Spirit there to help us. You know, when I look at the world and, and I see them going through hardship, I don't expect this from them because they don't have the Spirit of God. They don't have the peace of God. They don't have the comfort of God. They don't have any of these things. They're left alone in that regard. But we have the Spirit of God dwelling within us. And because of that, that should bring us to a place where we say, you know what, I'm not going to be troubled. I'm going trust in the Spirit of God. But you know what? There's something that we need to recognize is that if we just depend on ourselves, depend on our own strength and power and wisdom and insights and ability, it doesn't help us. We have access to the Spirit of God, but it doesn't force us to use it. We've got to make a choice to say, you know what? I'm not going to depend on my wisdom, my strength, my power, my ability. I'm going to choose to depend on the Spirit of God's strength. His power, His wisdom, His ability. When I face this circumstance and this hardship, it's available to us, it's a blessing to us, but only if we take advantage of it, only if we trust in it, only if we depend on it. The difficulties of life, as you probably have realized as I have, are far too difficult for us in our own wisdom, strength, and power to overcome. We need desperately power of the Holy Spirit, the strength of the Holy Spirit, the wisdom of the Holy Spirit, and God has given us that. We need to take advantage of it. So first, don't let your heart be troubled, because we have the hope of heaven. Look forward to it. Second, we know the nature of our Father, that He is good. Remember it. Third, we have the purpose of prayer. Utilize it. Fourth, 
We have the Holy Spirit to help on us depend on His help. And the fifth and final reason why we shouldn't let our heart be troubled is found in verse 27. It says this, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. Jesus tells us something wonderful here. He gives us His peace. And notice Jesus says, my peace is not like the world's peace. There's a difference between the, the peace of the world and the peace of Jesus. Jesus' peace is far better than the peace of the world. The fifth reason for why we shouldn't let our heart be troubled is because we have Jesus' peace. So when you're looking at a difficult situation or you're facing a difficult situation, don't look to the world's peace. Look to Jesus' peace. The world cannot give you the lasting deep peace that Jesus can. William Barclay, a great pastor and commentator, says this. In the Bible, the word for peace, shalom, means never means simply the absence of trouble. It means everything which makes for our highest good. The peace which the world offers is a peace of escape. The peace which comes from the avoidance of trouble and from refusing to face things. You know, the world's peace, I love what he says, comes from the avoidance of trouble. It's only available when there's no trouble in your life. Well, guess what? That's pretty useless when you're facing trouble. Because then, then you have no peace. The world can't offer it to you because you basically have to avoid the trouble in order to have the peace that the world gives. But that's not the kind of peace that Jesus offers because he offers us peace while we're still in the midst of trouble, while we're still going through trouble. And one of the great differences between Jesus' peace and the world's peace is found in Philippians 4, 6, and 7. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And notice what happens. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. One of the ways that Jesus' peace is superior to the world's peace is because Jesus can give us a peace that surpasses understanding, and guess what? The world cannot. The world can only offer peace that comes from understanding our circumstances and our difficulties and then trying to avoid them. But Jesus can give us peace in the midst of difficulties, in the midst of circumstances, when we don't know what's going on, when we don't understand why we're going through it, when we don't understand how it's going to end or what's going to happen, he says, you know what, you don't have to understand it all. I can still give you my peace that surpasses understanding, which is so helpful when you're in a troublesome situation to say, Lord, I don't get it. I don't know what's going on. I have worry about the future, but you know what, I just need your peace right now. You don't need to help me understand everything. Just give me the peace that surpasses understanding, and it helps us from getting troubled. Well, after Jesus tells the disciples that, he gives them his peace. Once again, he comes back to the challenge that he gave us in verse 1. He says, let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. Once again, he starts with this challenge, he ends with this challenge. Don't let your heart be troubled, guys. Don't let your heart get disturbed, agitated, distressed, worried, concerned. Why? Why? Because there's five wonderful things of encouragement. We have the hope of heaven. Look forward to it. We know the good nature of our Father. Remember it. We have the privilege of prayer. Utilize it. 
We have the Holy Spirit to help us depend on it, and we have Jesus' peace rest in it. You know, I want to finish this morning doing something that Jesus encouraged us to do in Matthew 11, 28-30. He says, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. I just want to take a few minutes, just quiet, you before God, come to Him. If you've been going through a difficulty, going through trouble, going through hardship, put these things into practice. Remember the truth of what Jesus says, but come to Him, you who are labor, you who are heavy laden, and guess what? He, and only He, can give you rest. Take His yoke, because His yoke is easy. His burden is light. Give Him your burdens. Give Him your problems. Leave it with Him. Trust Him with it. And so I just want to take some time this morning. Just go before the Lord. If you're dealing with any trouble, any situation, any hardship, bring it to Him. Ask for His help. And let's just take a moment to come and ask Him for that. you're here this morning and you've never come to Jesus before, you've never believed what he said, that he is the way, the truth, and the life, that he's the only one who can bring forgiveness, he's the only one to get to heaven, he's the only one who can do that for you. He died on the cross for our sins, he rose from the dead to conquer sin and death. If we believe that he is God, we believe that he died on the cross for our sin, we believe that he rose from the dead, we can be forgiven of our sins. If you've never done that, you've never asked for Jesus' forgiveness, you've never placed your belief in him, I want to give you an opportunity right now this morning. Everyone's eyes are closed, heads are bowed. If you've never done that, and you want to pray to accept Christ this morning, I'm just going to ask you to raise your hand, and I want to pray with you. Anyone here who's never done that wants to do that today. Bible says today is the day of salvation, not to put it off. If you've never done that, I encourage you today to get right with Jesus. Anyone here? Lord, we are so grateful that we have the privilege to do what you've said to do, to come to you. Tell us to come boldly to the throne of grace where we can find 
mercy and help in our time of need to come and to lay down our burdens before you, to take on your yoke because it's easy and light. Lord, this world is hard. It's full of difficulties. It's full of persecution. It's full of struggles. And yet we have you. We have you to come to, to help in our time of need. And I just lift up each person here, Lord. You know where everybody's at. You know what we're going through. You know the struggles, the temptations, the sins, the difficult circumstances. You know what we need. Father, I just pray that you would help us to recognize you're the answer. You're the one. You're the only one who can get us through the trials of life. Bring us to that place, Lord, where we remember these wonderful truths, where we recognize how blessed we are, that we're going to heaven, that you are a good Father, that we have this privilege of prayer, that we have the Holy Spirit dwelling in us, that your peace is always available. Lord, help us to take advantage of it as we face the hardships of life. God, I just pray as this next weekend is Christmas. Our culture celebrates all sorts of different things, Lord, but yet we celebrate you. We celebrate the incarnation. We celebrate the birth of Christ. And I pray that you would give us opportunity with family, with friends, with co-workers, with neighbors, Lord, to be a light for you, to share with them the good news of why you came to this earth, not just to be a baby, but to live a sinless life and to sacrifice yourself on the cross for our sins. Lord, give us opportunity this Christmas season to reach people with the gospel. We love you. We thank you. We praise you. We lift these things up in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Why do the worship team come on up and we'll close in a final song. And as they're coming up, we'll just remind you that uh, we have lunch right afterwards. We'd love for you to stay. We are having a Christmas Eve service at 5.30 here. Christmas uh, Day service on Sunday at 10.30 here, uh, and so if you can make it, we'd love to have you. We do have some flyers, uh, so if you're able to invite some friends, family, give them a flyer to remind them of what it is. Even if you're not going to be in town, invite someone else to come, even if you're not here, uh, and it's going to be very evangelistic. Uh, and I mentioned on Thursday that we weren't going to have a Thursday study, but uh, we are going to. It's going to be a little different. We're not going to do the normal uh, going through Peter. Uh, we're going to have a time of just worship and prayer and uh, just reflect on the Lord, and so... Uh, if you want to come out, we're going to have dinner at 6, 7, uh, time just to worship and praise the Lord, So, uh, and just pray for lots of different needs. So if you want to come, uh, we'd love to have you for that as well. So let's worship the Lord.